0: As we're going to study this morning, you're going to need a copy of God's Word. You can open up or turn your copy on to 1 John chapter 1. This morning is week 2 in our summer-long walk through the book of 1 John. And we're going to look this morning at 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 to verse 10. We're going to start with just a little piece of trivia from church history. I like trivia. I like these little uh, nuggets from the past. As early as the fourth century, the Apostle John had been given the nickname the theologian. And here's the, the brief backstory on this. You know that in ancient times, in the first, second, third, fourth, all the way up to the inventing of the printing press, any copy of God's word was hand copy. The scriptures were written by scribes by hand. And there's a copy of the book of Revelation, a manuscript of the book of Revelation. It dates to the fourth century. And in that copy of the book of Revelation, there's a title added to the book. The title is not there in the original. It's in our Bibles, but it's not there in the original. The title added in the fourth century is the Revelation of John. And then over in the margin, over to the side of the page, The scribe wrote in a little note talking about John, the author, and he wrote over in the margin, the theologian. And so John had this nickname from a very early date, a a reputation as being a theologian. And we talked about this last week. If you were joining us online, we talked about the fact that the book of 1 John is theology distillate. It's just completely cram-packed with references to God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's not like certain types of alcohol are alcoholic. It's just a completely distilled version of theology. You cannot escape references to God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so John the Apostle, who wrote the book of Revelation, who wrote the Gospel of John, who wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he's known as the theologian. This is important if you want to understand the Bible. It's important if you want to understand John's writings, and it's important if you want to understand the book of First John. Our friend Dr. Aiken, who was here for a marriage conference, helps us understand why this is so important. He says, an essential component of faithful gospel presentation is an understanding of the nature and the character of God. If you and I want to understand the good news about Jesus... The place you begin, ground level, step one, is who God is. What's his nature? What's his character? What's He's like? How should we think about him? And the book of 1 John is a wonderful place to find theology, distill it, the doctrine of God, distill it as we learn truth about who God is. So that brings us to the big idea of our passage It's not very creative. I've just lifted it straight out of the text. The big idea of our passage is this. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. That's what we read in 1 John 1, verse 5. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. I want you to understand that when John says God is light, he's not coming up with a completely new idea about who God is or what his character is like. In fact, he's drawing on the rest of the Old Testament and the rest of the New Testament, and he's pulling out truth, and he's distilling it down to this statement that God is light. And so I just want to remind you, maybe set a few things in front of you to help you think about this statement, God is light. And we'll just go through these quickly. Genesis 1-3. In the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was light. The very first thing that God created not a coincidence, it's not just, oh, that worked out nicely, it's intentionally, the first thing he creates is light, and he does it knowing, later, I'm going to use this first thing that I created to help my people understand something about me. I'm putting into creation something that will help them know me, and worship me, and love me. Exodus 3, God appears to Moses in light, a bush that's burning. And he leads his people out, chapter 13, in a pillar of fire. By night, there's light. And he brings them out, and they set up the tabernacle. And right there when you walk in the tabernacle is a giant lampstand. There's light. All of these things you're supposed to be tracking with saying, okay, this seems to be a repeated theme as God reveals himself to his people. David in Psalm 27 says this, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? He's my light. When David said that, he's thinking he's the one who brought the people out. He's the one who speaks light into existence. Isaiah 9, 2 talks about the Messiah. And the prophet Isaiah says that when the Messiah is born, it will be a light for the people living in darkness. And then you look at Luke 2, 32, baby Jesus is presented in the temple, and there's a man named Simeon who takes baby Jesus up in his arms, and he says, this is a light of revelation for the Gentiles. And then you keep reading, and you come to John eight twelve, and Jesus looks at his disciples, and he says, I am the light of the world. All this imagery starting to pile up. Matthew 17, verse 2, Jesus takes his closest friends up on a mountain. The Bible says he's transfigured, he's changed before them for a brief moment. And Matthew tells us his face shined like the sun and his clothing became white as bright light. You just start adding it all up all of these references to light, and you say, this is a theme from the very beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, all the way through the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, where we no longer need a son because Jesus is there, and he's the light. And here in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, John tells us, God is light. One last thought to help us make sense of this. When John says God is light, he's talking about character, and communication. He's talking to us about what God is like, who God is, and that God communicates who he is to us. So when we think about this idea that God is light, we're we're thinking about biblical words like he's holy, he's pure, he's glorious, he's beautiful. We're thinking about the idea that light always overcomes the darkness. All right, Darkness doesn't defeat light. Light defeats darkness. And we're thinking about the idea that light exposes the truth. Right, The idea that God is light is reminding us. God is telling us. He's not hiding from us. He's revealing himself to us. He's telling us what he's like. And in revealing himself as light... He's also exposing who we are. This is a two-way communication. On the one hand, we think about God being light, and we're awestruck by his glory and his beauty and his purity, and we stand in the presence of that light, and we realize just how far short we fall of his glory. So let's read the text, and then we'll jump in and try to make sense of what John is telling us. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Let's pray. Lord, this morning our prayer is that your word would be in us. We've read it. We're going to talk about it. We're going to study it. We're going to think about it. And, Lord, we want your word to take up root in our lives. Father, we pray that you would be light to us this morning, that you would reveal yourself, that you would expose our sin, and that we would see the hope of the gospel, that we would trust in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Last week I made a passing reference to Star Wars. We were looking at the beginning of 1 John and we were talking about stories and we were talking about the beginning of stories and I, I made a passing reference to the opening crawl of Star Wars and the opening line that kicks off every Star Wars movie. When I came into the office Monday morning, Corey Spear cornered me and confronted me. And he wasn't upset about something I said. He was upset about something I didn't say. He said, you brought up Star Wars right before May the 4th. And you didn't take the opportunity to wish everyone happy Star Wars Day and say may the fourth be with you and all of that nonsense. And he thought I really blew it. So I'm going to try to atone for my omission this morning. And I'm going to give you one more Star Wars reference. And by my count, this should make us good for about a decade. I don't think we need any more Star Wars for the next decade or so. So here we go. In the Star Wars movies, of which I've watched but I'm not a huge fan, There is a character who shows up in every single movie, but never actually appears on the screen. And that character that plays a very important role in the movie is the Force. And there is a dark side to the Force, and there is a light side to the Force. And all the major characters in the movie have to wrestle with the dark side and the light side of the Force. The villains see the dark side and they want to use it and harness it and control it and use the dark side of the force for their own self-advancement. The heroes resist the dark side. They they turn away from the dark side and they move towards the light side. And rather than trying to control it, they want the light side of the force to just work through them, to operate through them to some good end. And all the characters wrestle with this. Are you going to move towards the darkness, are you going to move towards the light? And it's a great plot device in the stories, and it runs through all of the movies. It's not remotely close to the biblical worldview about who God is. We're not talking about a supreme being who sort of has two sides, a nice side and a, a grouchy side, a good side and a mean side. John says God is light. Not just that he moves towards the light. Not just that he tends to be associated with the light. He says he is light. And as if that's not clear enough, then he tacks on the explanatory phrase, in him is no darkness at all. He's light. And in him is no darkness. Darkness at all. When you and I start to think rightly about God, that's what one of the things John is doing in this book. He's helping us think rightly about who God is and what He's like. When we start to wrap our minds around an idea like this, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all, it changes the way that we think about. Dozens and dozens of other issues. In particular, this morning, it changes the way that we think about salvation. It changes the way that we think about the forgiveness of sins. It changes the way that we think about eternal life. It changes the way that we think about a a relationship with God. It changes the way that we think about our spiritual experiences. And the verses we've looked at, verse 5 to 10, it's a really simple passage when you see the pattern that John has laid out. And I'll just put the pattern on the screen. Verse 5 is the big idea, right? This is the big truth about God that he's telling us. And then everything else sort of explains how this impacts us. And it's it's like poetry. It's more poetic than prose. In verse 6 he says, if we say this, and it's a negative example, And then in verse 7, he says, if we say this, we do this, and it's a positive example. And then he goes back to a negative and back to a positive, and he ends with a negative. And the whole thing is bracketed by these negative warnings, and there's one in the middle. Here's why John does that. He is warning us in light of the truth about who God is. He's light, and in him is no darkness at all. He's warning us about the dangers of a phony, fake, spiritual experience. He exposes the worthlessness, depending on how you count them, two or maybe three phony spiritual experiences. And so I just want to mention these to you and show them to you in the text. Here's one phony spiritual experience. John says, this is not the truth. Number one, claiming to know God while living in habitual, unrepentant sin. If that's your spiritual experience, that you claim to have a relationship with God, but your life is marked by habitual, unrepentant sin, John says, you need to understand that's a phony spiritual experience. It doesn't line up with the truth. And he says it in verse 6. John says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice The truth. John's not saying that if you claim to be a Christian and you commit a sin, you automatically go back to square one and you start over and you lose your salvation and you just got to try better next time. That's not what he's saying. The key word is the word walk. This is going to come up all through the summer, all the way through 1 John. He says, If we say we have fellowship with him, with God, while we walk, in the darkness and that word walk describes the totality of your life the overall direction of your life maybe not a single episode from your life but the movie reel or the tendencies in your life if the overall picture of your life is walking in darkness john says you're a liar to claim that you have fellowship with god That's one phony spiritual experience. Here's a second and maybe a third, claiming that we no longer sin or that we have not sinned. And These two verses are similar, verse 8 and 10. Maybe there's a little distinction between the two, but we're lumping them together. A phony spiritual experience claiming that we no longer sin or that we have not sinned. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. That's a a present tense verb that he's using. So he's saying, if you say right now, I feel like I'm doing pretty good in my obedience to God. I don't feel like I really have any major sin that would separate me from God. I've reached a point in my spiritual growth where sin is really no longer something I'm wrestling with. John says, if that's you, here's my paraphrase, you're fooling yourself. You're deceiving yourself. and He says this is, not, this is not the truth. If you look down in verse 10, maybe he takes it a step further. He says if we say we have not sinned, those verbs are looking backwards to say I'm not really guilty of any big sin that would disqualify me from having a relationship with God. I don't really see anything in my past that is so egregious and so offensive that I wouldn't be able to walk in close fellowship with God. I don't see that sin is a big problem in my life now or really has been anywhere in the past. John says if you say that, you make him a liar. And you make him a liar because God has clearly said throughout the Bible that all have sinned. And so if your evaluation, if your summary of your life is, I have not sinned, you're completely at odds with what God says about you and how you can have a relationship with him. Look, these phony spiritual experiences are on display in our country every single day all the time. Just take them one at a time. Verse 6, claiming to have fellowship with God while walking in darkness. The vast majority of people in the United States of America believe that there is a God. They may not believe the same things about that God that you and I believe, but the vast majority believe there's a God out there. And the vast majority of people in the United States of America believe that there is an afterlife and that when they get there, they're going to have a good experience in the afterlife. They're going to go to heaven when they die. The vast majority of people believe that. If you think that's not true, just go and sit in on funerals for a week. At every one of them, they're going to say, oh, they're in a better place. Oh, it's all, you know, it's all better now. Really doesn't matter what their spiritual condition was, that's just sort of what's said, that's what's hoped for, that's what's believed. And how many people who cling to that vague hope of God and heaven would fall under the category of what John says, walking in darkness. Many of them. And John just rips the band-aid off. This is one of the reasons I love John. He was a pastor. But in this book, he's not really pastorally sensitive. He just says if that's you claiming to have fellowship with God while you walk in darkness, you are a liar. You don't have fellowship with Him. Secondly, verse 8 saying that we have no sin. I think if you took a quick poll of the average person in the United States, many of them would be quick to admit that they are not perfect, but many of them would bow up and resist the idea that they are sinful. We don't like the word, and we don't like the category. And instead of sin, we'd rather use words like mistake, shortcoming, issue, hang up, failure, disorder, Rather than own up to our sin, we want to blame parents, we want to blame genetics, we want to blame education or poverty, or maybe we want to blame the government. What we don't want to do is look in the mirror and call a spade a spade and call ourselves sinners. makes us uncomfortable and uneasy. And so there's this idea of, no, I'm, I'm not a sinner. And then verse 10, I think, also describes many in our day and age if we say we have not sinned. I just don't think that what I'm doing is sinful, period. I have not committed a sin in living this way or moving in this direction or pursuing these things. Sounds like a lot of people today. And John says, in that case, you actually make God the liar, and his word is not in you. Here's the point. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 8, look at verse 10. Each one begins with us saying something. If we say, if we say, if we say, and each time John comes back and he, he just sort of slaps us across the spiritual face, and what he's saying to us is it doesn't matter what you say. You saying something about your relationship with God doesn't make it so. You saying that you have a relationship with God or fellowship with God doesn't mean that you do. Those are not the tests that John is setting before us. There's a great story from the life of Charles Spurgeon. A lot of great stories from Spurgeon's life. But here's a great story from the life of Spurgeon. He was famous. His church was huge, By our standards today, by standards when he lived, it was just absolutely ginormous. Everyone in London knew him. Uh, People talked to him all the time if he was on the street. And one day he met a man on the street, and they struck up a conversation. The guy really wanted to talk to Spurgeon. He, He was this great preacher, world famous. And this guy approaches Spurgeon, and he says to him, Mr. Spurgeon, I have reached a point in my spiritual development where I no longer sin." You laugh, and I laugh, and Spurgeon probably laughed, but he started to listen to the guy, and the guy said, yeah, I've, you know, I, I've read the Bible enough, I've gone to church enough, I've prayed enough, I've done enough of these things, and I, I've, I've reached a level of sanctification where sin is really just no longer an issue for me, and Spurgeon said, you know what, I'd love to hear more about this, would you come eat dinner at my house? The guy said, Absolutely and he feels honored, and he feels like a big deal. I'm going to eat with Spurgeon. He goes over to Spurgeon's house. They sit down at the table. They strike up conversation. The guy's in the middle of saying something. Spurgeon takes his glass of water and throws it in the man's face. Just out of the blue. And the guy starts yelling and hooting and hollering and cursing, and why did you do that? I'm so offended. What in the world? And Spurgeon says this. I love it. He says, oh, you see, the old man within is not as dead as you claim. He had simply fainted, and I have revived him with but a glass of water. He's there. Here's what you and I need. We need someone to come alongside us with a cup of spiritual cold water and to throw it in our face and to wake us up from all the nonsense that we hear in our culture about a relationship with God, about salvation, about all these sort of things that are floating around in the air. And John is the man to do it. He does it in this passage. He's going to do it all summer long. He just says, look, you can say this, and you can say this, and you can say this, and it doesn't change a thing. Here's the positive spiritual experience, the truthful spiritual experience he wants us to have. A spiritual experience that lines up with the truth is based on God's character, who He is, and our confession. and when we're talking about confession here, we're not talking about a confession of faith, we're talking about confession of sin. Our relationship with God, a a true, genuine spiritual experience, lines up with the truth. It's based on God's character and confession. Look at verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. It's important when you read verse 7 that you understand it in the context Of the New Testament. Because at first glance, you read it and you say, wow, if I want to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus, verse 7 says, I have to walk in the light. That sounds like I have to be really, really good. That's your first thought when you read that. If you're really, really good, the blood of Jesus will cleanse you from your sins. I'm going to tell you and show you that's the exact opposite of what it's saying. Look what John wrote back in the Gospel of John, quoting Jesus as he talks about the light and our sin. He said, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light. Why would people prefer darkness to light? Jesus says it's because their works are evil. And when light shows up, it exposes us for who we are, and we naturally bristle against that. We don't like it. We we tend to run from it says, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. When John says in 1 John 1, 1.7, if we walk in the light, he's talking about coming to the light of God and his glory and his holiness and being exposed as wicked people. Verse 7 is really a parallel verse. Remember I told you this passage was sort of like poetry. Verse 7 is a parallel verse with what John says in verse 9. The even verses go together. The odd verses go together. In verse 9, John says it this way. He's saying the same thing differently. If we confess our sins, that's coming to the light. That's being exposed Don't try to hide your sin or lie about your sin or justify your sin or explain away your sin. Just confess it. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is there a more beautiful promise in the Bible than that? You may have one that just appeals to you and has sentimental value. I'm just telling you that's a great promise. If you will confess your sins to God who is light. What does it mean to confess your sins? The Greek word is a word homologeo. So the English word is confess or confession. The Greek word is homologeo. It's a mashup of two Greek word parts that just means same word. It's the idea that you say the same thing, right? It's what I'm essentially trying to do preaching Thursday to the camera at 9 o'clock to you and at 10.30 to the next group. I want to say the same thing each time. And when it's used in the context of God and our sin, it's you and I saying the same thing about our sin that God says. God, I'm agreeing with you about who you are in your holiness, your light, and who I am as a sinner. I'm not trying to say something different in you. I'm agreeing with you. And John says, if you will confess your sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not just based on the fact that we are going to confess our sins. It's ultimately based on his character. And John says, he's faithful. He said he's going to do it. When has he not done what he said he would do? He's promised you. If you confess them, he's faithful to do what he said he's going to do. And, this is the shocking word, he's just... He is faithful to keep his promise to forgive you if you confess, and he's just. How in the world could God be just to simply forgive our sins? The answer is back up in verse 7, the parallel verse. It's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from sins. A payment has been made. Blood has been spilt. Right? The cross and the atonement has been accepted as the payment of our debt. He's not going to exact double payment. He's faithful to do what he said he's going to do, and he's just. That's his character. And to close, I just want you to see the benefits of all this. If that's my spiritual experience, based on the character of God and me confessing my sin, what's the benefit? Here it is. Number one, we have fellowship with one another. And it's a surprising benefit. When you look at verse 7, what you expect John to say is, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship With God, that's what we're looking for, and we're going to get there. But right here he inserts a benefit, and he says we have fellowship with each other. We have a relationship with each other, and we talked about this last week. A relationship with God restores vertically what was lost between us and God. It also establishes horizontally a relationship between you and the people of God. So you have fellowship with one another. Secondly, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sins. The idea here is really simple. Sin makes us dirty. It's a stain on our lives. And it's a stain that we can't clean. This week we opened the dryer, and one of our children, won't tell you who, had left a wad of crayons in his pocket. They're not coming out. Just throw it all away. There's a stain on our lives. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from that stain. Where we once were dirty, now we're clean. Thirdly, God forgives our sin debt. Verse 9. He forgives us our sins. That word forgiveness is really kind of an accounting term. It's a, a, a word from the world of banking that talks about a debt being forgiven. Your sin puts you in debt to God, and he doesn't ask you to pay it back. He doesn't set up a payment plan. He doesn't charge excessive interest. It's paid. When you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here's my prayer for you. Here's my prayer for me. I pray that we would be awakened to the danger of a phony, fake, shallow, unhelpful spiritual experience. And John lays it out here. He warns us. My prayer is that we would not deceive ourselves and lie to ourselves, and essentially call God a liar. That's what John says it's like to have a phony spiritual experience. You're fooling yourself, you're lying, and you're making God out to be a liar. My prayer for me and for you is that our spiritual experience would be based on God's character, that we would understand it accurately, not as we might think he is, but as he's revealed himself to be. And that we would confess our sins fully. Not explaining them away or justifying them or trying to make them seem not as bad as they are. Just confess them for what they are. And that we would know these benefits. Fellowship, yes with God, but also with each other. That we would understand what it is to be cleansed, cleaned. That we would understand what it is to have our debt forgiven. That we would walk in the light.